This is Pastor Matthew Castro at Central Church. I'm the adult ministries pastor, and you are listening to Attributes of God with Dr. Jim Ullman. Well, good evening. It's about time to start. So if you take your seats. For some of you, this may be a, pl- a blast from the past. Ladies and jelly beans, hobos and tramps, cross-eyed mosquitoes and cross-legged lance. I come before you not to stand behind you to talk about something I know nothing about. The subject of the discourse this evening will be the four corners of a round table. I thank you. So thank you. At least I got your attention. <laughs> so so uh, let's have a word of prayer. For those of you who are talking, we're going to pray now. So hush and stay hushed. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the evening. Thank you, especially, though, that you have revealed yourself. You've not left us in doubt as to who you are, what kind of person you are. Uh, Now give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I want to start with God's unity tonight. I think you may have notes on that. I'm not sure. Do you? All right. We're still talking about the uh, incommunicable attributes. These are things about God that he shares with no creature, no other being. Uh, So they're incommunicable. They cannot be communicated to to anyone else. Uh, So... God's unity, Ephesians 4, 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the hope of, uh, uh, that belongs to your call, one Lord, so one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, uh, who is over all and through all and in all. So the unity of God, this is something that's foundational to all Christian thought. And it's so commonly known that we don't stop and think about the implications of this. Uh, We've talked about this before in some measure. One of the differences between Islam and and Christianity is that the God of Islam is by himself altogether. And he has relationship with nothing else. Uh, This is one of the things that... um, in fact, Muslims chide us for this in some measure. They, they say to us, uh, we pray five times a day. We never see you praying. We, we do these rituals, and we never see you do anything. Um, uh, what, they, what they don't know, though, and what they never experience, we need to give them an awareness of our experience of the nearness of God and our fellowship with him. They know nothing of that, and it is shocking to them. Does this make sense to you? All right. So uh, God lives in community. <clears throat> he is three persons within, uh, he is one, uh, yeah, three persons within the nature of one God. Uh, we've asked this question before, how many of the attributes does of God does the Father have? How many of the attributes does the Son have? How many of the attributes does the Spirit have? All of them. But as we shall see tonight, 
unity, the next category we'll talk about is simplicity. God is not complex. He's not made up of parts. Part of God is not Jesus. Jesus is not part of God. He is God. The Father is not part of God. He is God. There's one God who exists in three persons who uh, fellowship with one another. Our God has always dwelt in community. Are, are you with me here? Yes? But that community is always one. Then the community that he creates on the earth must be one. Did you hear that? We must be one. There's a huge amount of emphasis in the New Testament on the unity of the church. Acts has a heavy emphasis on it. Romans, that's the point of the book. 1 Corinthians, that's effectively the point of 1 Corinthians. Um, Ephesians emphasizes this. I think, if I recall properly, Philippians emphasizes this. Am I making sense to you? It's a, it's a huge emphasis in the New Testament. We conveniently overlook it. <laughs> uh, because we have our own agendas when we come to these books. But, but we've got to begin to think about uh, maintaining the unity of the faith in the bond of love as, as the New Testament talks. Am I making sense to you? We are the creation of a God who is communal. He lives always in community. And, and it is a community of three persons who so interpenetrate one another, Jesus can say, how can you say, show us the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Uh, then, folks, we must become that kind of community. This is, this is a, a necessity, and it's a major emphasis of the New Testament. So we're going to have to start uh, in our own lives, seeking community with one another. Um, so this one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. <clears throat> Each of you individually is the temple of God. <laughs> uh, those of you who went to Israel, when you went to the Temple Mount, how did you feel? What, just, what, 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 what were you thinking as you were there, Ken? That God, that you should have been there. Yeah. That God, I mean, it's just overwhelming presence in that area. Yeah, you just, the, the history crowds in on you, and you think about the glory of God settling on Solomon's temple. Yes? Uh and, and then Jesus came there. Do you remember what he said to his parents when he was not with them when they, they went on, headed back to Jerusalem when he was a child? And they came back worried, looking for him. Folks, if I was a child and we were on a trip, but it was in walking distance, where would you go to look for me if I got lost? First place you ought to go is to my home. Do you follow? 
That's exactly what Jesus said. Uh, we've, we've remembered the King James quite well, many of us. Uh, did you not know I must be about my father's business? But that's really not what he said. Didn't you, didn't you know I'd be at my father's place? But you see, they couldn't perceive that. They couldn't conceive that because he was too much a boy to them. Um, so the first place you would go to look for Jesus in Jerusalem would be at the temple. Why would you not expect to find him there if you understood who he was? Do you see the point then? You are, each of you, individually, the temple of God. Um, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. His purpose in you is the same purpose he had in the tem temple in Jerusalem, and that is to show his glory to the world through you. Are you with me here? When you confront one another, you are confronting a temple of God. How should, how should we act at the temple of God? Does that mean I have to agree with you on everything? No. But I have to treat you as the temple of God with respect and honor. Does this make sense to you? If, and, and so not only is each one of us the temple of God, we are together the temple of God as a congregation here at Central Church. But not only are we as a congregation temple of God, but all our brothers and sisters over the world are the temple of God too. So we've got to begin to start, begin to start. <laughs> we've got to start thinking about the, the holy status each one of us has. And when I talk about holiness, I want you to go back and think about what we said about holiness. Holiness in God is uh, the collective and consummate glory of his nature. We are holy because we are in relationship to himself, not because we are good, not because we are better than others. Are you with me? So it's not a matter of being holy and, and drawing up our robes around ourselves so we don't get soiled by anybody, any sin in the congregation. <laughs> it's that we are distinctive in the world because God has chosen to set his name with us. And indeed, in the Old Testament, God said he chose the temple to place his name there. Are you, am I making sense to you? So he is a unity. Uh, everywhere God is, all, the, all, all of God is there. And God is everywhere, including places where there are no places to be. Okay, so if that's the case, then you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. The, indeed, Jesus said, the Father, and I, the Father and I will come and make our abode with you and we will never leave you. Then you are a holy temple of God. Yes? So the, the unity of God is expressed in you. And you must live in that awareness so that you may live according to who you are, not according to who the world has told you you are, nor according to what you have thought you are. You must learn to think of yourself as God thinks of you. 
this is not just, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of here? We're, we're not just trying to control our thinking. We're trying to subdue our thoughts, our, our concept of reality to the concept of reality that God has. Right? I have a false concept of reality. God alone has a right concept of reality, and one of the things we're doing in Bible study is to find out what that right concept of, of reality is. Then I can arrange my life to fit that reality under the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and notice that there's a, there's a dot P there at the end, and, and that probably is very significant. It's significant of the fact that my finger slipped. Um, <laughs> but, God, but God's unity is... is more than simply this, this unity also is expressed in God's uniqueness and absolute oneness. It's his unity of singularity. This implies that there is only one divine being. God is numerically one. We've said this in various ways, but uh, uh, numerically one, not in the sense that uh, he is one among others, but exclusively and solely the one God. This is why the Old Testament is so hard on all idolatry. Um, for us, idolatry is uh, bowing down to a, to a statue someplace or sacrificing to a statue. That's idolatry, certainly. But even having a, a, a an unbiblical concept of who God is is constructing an idol. And I quoted this, and you're, you're going to get weary of it, but um, I only know a few things, so I have to repeat them. So, <laughs> but, but Voltaire is supposed to have said, God created man in his own image, and man has returned the favor. Even as children of God, we construct a God of our own making. And when we do, we are idolaters, and we must repent of that and come to find out what this God is who has called us into relationship with himself. Um, and all other beings then exist from him, through him, and to him. Nothing, nothing that exists is not for God's sake. It came from God, it's sustained by God, and it's for his sake. But there is the, the qualitative unity of the, of the divine essence, his unity of simplicity, and we'll talk about simplicity in a minute. The inner unity of God's essence by which all composition is, is denied. Ah, where in your body is your soul? I don't know either. I don't, and my first problem is, if, if you ask me that question, I would say, well, I... If I knew what a soul was, I'd be able to say some more about it. I just, I've, since 1970, the late 1970s, I've been trying to find guidance on what the soul is. I still don't know. You know it's in four parts, S-O-U-L. Yeah, and notice that O-U is in the middle of it. Uh, so. My brother and I are going to have trouble in October, so, and I think I know who's going to have the trouble. But, but uh, uh, in what part of your body is your soul? Probably fills your whole body. Is 
10 ounces of your soul in your foot? <clears throat> Probably not. When, when, you are, when you are thinking about your body, you, you are aware of every part of your body, yes? I, and well, I, in, in, the, in a kind of gross sense. I'm not aware of what my liver is doing at this point, yes? But uh, I guess it's livering, but beyond that, I can't say. Uh, but, um, but, I, I, but my legs, my feet, my knees, my, my stomach, my back, my shoulders, every, I'm aware of all of it, yes? That's in your CNS. CNS? Central nervous. Central nervous system. That's, that's probably true, but... That's automatic. But I still have my central nervous system after I die, yeah. and I'm not aware of anything in my body. So there's something, and this is one of the... I think this is still a mystery to medical science. What exactly is life? What specifically defines life? Um... They don't know. And, and they know when it has ceased, but they don't know what it is. Am I making sense to you? I would argue that it's the soul and the body that animates the central nervous system. So my point is, I don't have 40% of my soul below my waist and, and 60%, see, because I have a little more above my waist than I do below, but... <laughs> 40, 60% above my waist, it simply animates my whole body. Yes? Am I making sense to you? This is, the, this is the kind of thing we're talking about with reference to God. So we have analogies of this in our own being that we can understand. Um, he is the sole object. Since he is the one God, since he, uh, folks, unity... And the word unique come from the same word root in Latin. Uh, unus means one. So unus, duo, tres, quattro, quattro, quinque, sex. All right? So unus. But the adjective is unicus. Can you hear unique in that? Yes? Uh, one of a kind. There is... There is by the way, therefore, you can't have something that's very unique. <laughs> what is unique is one of a kind, and you can't have something that's very one of a kind. There are some that are almost unique, right? Yes, somewhat unique. No, if it's unique, it's unique. So he is one in the sense that there is no one, no other like him. And he is unique in the sense that this is beyond really our comprehension. But as such, God is a self-giving person. He lives in fellowship. We've already suggested this, yes? What does fellowship mean? Two fellows in the same ship. I've heard that all my life. I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear it ever again. So I want to preclude you from doing that, and I get mad at you for doing it. So what does fellowship mean? What's that? What does that mean? Yeah. Spending time together. Getting to know one another, yes? Uh, God doesn't need to get to know 
the persons. The Father doesn't need to get to know the Son. The Son doesn't need to get to know the Spirit. But they commune with one another. Yes? Um, do you remember in John that, that Jesus says, I don't say anything except what the Father gives me to say. Do you remember this? Uh, he lived in permanent, continuous fellowship with the Father in his human uh, existence. That's stunning to me. That's amazing. Uh, I don't know altogether what that means or what the implications are for us. But it is amazing. John is a rather amazing book, as, as you would know. The, the point that I'm getting to is, though, that they still commune with one another. I commune with my wife when I come home from a meeting, maybe, and I, she'll say, well, what happened? I'll tell her what happened, and we'll talk about it and so on. Usually we're watching TV, but, <laughs> but the... Uh, uh, the, the, the communing is sharing with one another, sharing life. And that's the best I can do with fellowship. Fellowship is shared life. So what, what does it look like when you share life with people? You get to know them. You get to know them. What else? How do you get to know them? Well, I think it's just part of that. Yeah, we, yeah, well, but what does it look like? What, what happens when you're doing life together? You do things together. Yes? You, you get together. You talk. You have conversations. You help each other. You have arguments. Yes? In a, in a fallen world, even redeemed be believers have still sin in us. And so we're going to have arguments. We're not always going to see eye to eye. But when you love one another, what happens during the argument? What would you say? Forgive. Work it out. Forgive. You work it out. You find ways to work it out. Yes? You don't let the argument break the relationship. You work through it. Um, um, <laughs> Jan and I have been married 53 years. Bless her, bless her heart. <laughs> uh, neither one of us knew what we were getting into. Not necessarily. Um, there are times when divorce just becomes absolutely essential. I know of people who are in narcissistic relationships and getting them out of that relationship is the absolute essential. Um, so, I mean, it is, there's, you've got to break that such that the other person doesn't have direct access to the wronged party at all. Uh, there, there are just times when there's nothing you can do. It, it, so, but, but the point is that um, there are many divorces. Folks, what is a divorce for the sake of incompatibility? Folks, there are no two humans in the world who are compatible. <laughs> so divorces for incompatibility are effectively nonsense. Sometimes I even want to divorce myself. Well, I understand that. And some of us, some of us enter into the sensibility of that. But the 
the point then is, if God is the sole object of worship, then, then he is one. And anything that I do that is sin is assuming that God is different than he is. Does this make sense to you? That means then that seeking unity among ourselves becomes a necessity so that, that we do not become idolaters because we make a God in our own image. Well, God, if he were here physically, would have an invitation every Sunday morning. Well, I don't know that. Do you? Well, God, if he were here, would have only deacons and one pastor in a church. Well, I don't know that. Do you? Am I making sense to you? So, you're asking that question now that people... Yeah. Do they not realize he is here? Well, I, that's why I qualified it, if, I, if he were here in a physical sense. Uh, so the, the, the point, folks, is we've got to get over our human constructs and learn to think about God and relationship to God and relationship to one another in light of a God <clears throat> who determines all reality. And if he has determined all reality, I need to go find out what the reality is he honors and then get involved in that reality. Yes? All right. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, we could look at that. He is the sole creator and sustainer of the world. Uh, nobody else is sustaining the world, certainly. Um, this is the, this is the uh, do, do you know the name James Tour, Dr. James Tour? I think I've mentioned him to you once or twice. It's, his last name is T-O-U-R. He's quite, quite a physicist. Uh, but Tour has been, I think he's a chemical physicist. I, I didn't even know there was such a thing. But um, he's been pushing the point. He's, he's a brother in the Lord. He's also Jewish, which is even more remarkable. But the, uh, he's been pushing the point that science really doesn't even understand what life is and doesn't know, has no way to explain how life came into existence. Um, if God is the creator and sustainer of the world, then he knows how the world ought to function. He knows how our human life ought to function. And our task as his children is to find out what he thinks and then to organize our lives in, in, in concert with what he's doing. Um, far from contradicting God's singularity and utter uniqueness, the work of Christ and the Spirit confirm and clarify it. John 17, 3, Romans 3, 30, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5. Once again, we could look at these references, but you can look at them in, at your leisure later and, uh, and uh, contemplate them in light of this. The, the Father, the Son, and Spirit interpenetrate one another. My problem is I can't get inside my wife's head. She can't, get, can't get inside mine. I can't get inside my children's head, and they can't get inside mine. Yes? Uh, but the Father, yeah, fortunately, but the Father, the Son, and Spirit are in each other's head, if you will, if you, if you don't mind that metaphor. And they are inside our heads, too. 
And we have access to the mind of Christ. Uh, he is free from division or parts. His attributes are not parts of God's being. He does not have love. He is love. He does not have power. He is omnipotence. It should have been omnipotence. Thus God is lovingly powerful and powerfully loving. Uh, that's the thing that's hard for us to, to comprehend. Someone who's powerful is not always loving. Someone who's loving is not always powerful. But God has perfectly balanced. That's, that's a false statement in itself. But take it in the spirit in which it's given. He is perfectly balanced in all aspects of his being. So his power is always exercised in loving ways. And his love is always expressed in powerful ways. Um, this is his simplicity, and we'll talk about simplicity shortly, very quickly. He is, from, he is free from division or parts. His attributes are not parts. Oh, I've, I've already said that, so let's go on and look at simplicity. This word may be understood by reference to the term complex. Um, the comparable, comparable word would be com complex simplex. Uh, you know what something is that's complex. Yes? What's, what is a, a complex thing? Your wife. Okay. I won't say that you said that, Pat, uh, Pete, but uh, uh, <laughs> what, is, what is something? What, what do we mean when we say that something is complex? Say again? Well, yeah. <laughs> You'd make a good theologian. Not, well? Make it made up of multiple parts. If if what is complex is made up of multiple parts, what is simplex? Simple parts. <laughs> there are no parts. So simple. Uh, the word simple can be used for someone who is simple-minded. That's not what we're talking about. God is simple simplex in that he has no parts. You don't encounter part of God here in Tennessee and another part of God in, in Israel. The same God is there and here. So he's made, uh, 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 what is complex is made up of various interconnected parts. It's composite. God's simplicity requires two affirmations. And this is a, a bit wordy, please forgive. First, God is exempt from all composition. So he never had to take an English course in college. Uh, he's, he, got, he got a prior credit from high school. He's, he, he's not composed of anything. He exists within his own divine essence and in no need of a composer, that is, somebody to compose him, some other being to put him together. As the uncaused causer, he cannot be composed like his creatures whose existence is caused by an outside force. I didn't ask to be born. Of course you didn't. What do you think, stupid? <laughs> Nobody asked to be born. <laughs> so get over it. <laughs> but, but that very statement asserts that I am not the author of my own being. 
and therefore I don't have a right to my own being. Do you follow this? Um, second, he has distinct attributes that should not be confused for distinctions in his essence. When I talk about his love, I'm talking about the whole of God. When I talk about his justice, I'm talking about the whole of God. When I talk about his mercy, I'm talking about the whole of God. When I talk about his wrath, I'm talking about the whole of God. Do I understand what I just said? Not on your life. But it has to be true. Um, God puts off, and this is what I, one of the things I've learned, I've, I've been, this will not shock you, but if you knew what department I was in at Dallas Seminary, it might. I was in the Bible exposition department, whose job was to teach courses covering every book of the Bible. And, the, and, and so, uh, <laughs> my first semester, the chairman of my department said, do you want to emphasize Old Testament, New Testament? Do you want to emphasize one part of the Bible as opposed to another? I said, no, I really like um, oh, uh, variety, so I'd like to teach all the courses. So in his good mercy, he assigned me to teach all 66 books of the Bible in the first two years I was at the seminary. I was working like a Trojan trying to get ready just for the next class. It was horrible. I didn't mean to do it in two years. I thought, you know, four or five years. But, uh, but over time, they started uh, putting me more in the Old Testament. And so I've, I've taught mostly the Old Testament um, in the last years I was there. And doing that, um, I, have, I have been, uh, uh, oh, I, I can't even remember why I was going into this. He has distinct attributes that should not be confused for distinctions in his essence. Uh, I have, oh, now I remember, thank you, Lord. Uh, um, I've, been, I've been astounded by the wrath of God. Not by the fact that he has it, but that, that he doesn't exercise it more often. And I, th I think it's right to say, I've not tested this, but I think it's right to say, especially with Israel, and after all, with the Canaanites, God delays his wrath as long as he can without becoming unjust. Uh, when, when it becomes obvious that God is not dealing unjustly, then he brings his wrath to bear. When God's wrath comes, then you may be certain that it was well-deserved, and well-deserved long before it fell. Does this make any sense to you? Uh, so the wrath of God is loving. That, that's a bit... Astonishing to us, yeah, Bill. Well, I'm getting off of that. But when God said in Isaiah that I'm going to re, I'm going to make everything right again. Jerusalem is going to be new and Yes. He's talking about what's still yet to come. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, because what Isaiah prophesied never came to pass in the restoration of Israel from Babylonian captivity. It never came to pass. 
So, yeah, he's talking about the future. Um, that's kind of interesting, folks. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. Um, destroyed. Um, when they went back in 5... Uh, what was it? 520 B.C., they waited, uh, how long, how did, they went back in 536, sorry, I'll get it right in a minute. They went back in 536 BC, they waited until 520 to start rebuild, to start to rebuild the temple, even. But they didn't start rebuilding Jerusalem until the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and Ezra and Nehemiah are mid-5th century BC, so for Ezra is usually dated around 457, Nehemiah around 444. It's after Nehemiah came back that they started rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So that the, the, the prophecy of the restoration of Jerusalem never has been fulfilled. Um, in, indeed, when they built the temple, because you've been spending some time in Haggai recently, I'll quote Haggai chapter 2, but, but um, Haggai chapter 2 the whole of the book of Haggai is about the rebuilding of the temple in 520 B.C. They finally finished it in 516. But in 520, they laid the foundation, and they, uh, they consecrated it, built the, the altar. Uh, and Indeed, they had done that before, but they started building. And as they were building it, it's like driving through any new housing um, construction area. You look at, and you know what kind of houses must be in the area. Yes, because of what's all around it. So you know the size of the houses that are going to be built there. But you look at the, at the uh, uh, foundation of it, and it looks so small. Yes? And this is what they were experiencing. Uh, is it not in your eyes as nothing? But I will glorify this house. I will bring the glory of the nations. And that's not talking about Jesus in the context. It's talking about the wealth of the nations to Jerusalem. And he did. Um, but, the, but the point I'm making, folks, is um, God's wrath is slow in coming because, not because he's unjust, but because his love and his mercy for his creatures and I'm not talking about Israel. I'm talking about pagans. I'm talking about Canaanites. I'm talking, do you not remember the, when he talked to Abraham about Israel coming to the land? The, the sin of the Amorite is not yet full. It's going to be one day, but it's not yet. Uh, so he delays his wrath. This is surely the love of God toward his creatures. Um, simplicity is inferred from three uh, of his attributes. One is the omnipresence of God. And a good, good simple definition of omnipresence, we've, we've used this before, everywhere God is, all of God is there. So if all of God is there, there aren't any parts here that aren't over there. Do, do you see the point? Furthermore, his infinity. Uh, God is not something stretched out through all existence. He is... He fills the universe with the fullness of his being and he transcends it. 
infinitely. So the fullness of his being, if I, um, Psalm 139, we looked at this two or three weeks ago. If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Do you remember how we explained that? If I could, if I could fly from the east to the west as fast as the light of dawn does, even there your hand will lay hold of me, your right hand will guide me. I, I can't get away from God. And for David, that was frightening. And God's unchangeability. Um, I change because <laughs> age, in one thing, in one way, uh, I'm, I'm really finding sometimes when I'm getting confused and I'm not comfortable with this. I used to be able to look at something and understand it and then work with it. And then I look at something and I see it a different way than it actually is and I act on what I perceived it to be instead of what it is. This is not normal for me. I don't know quite how to deal with this. Some of you know this better than I. And that's... Just remember, normal is just a sitting on your driver. <laughs> <laughs> my, my point is, I am changeable. God is not. He never changes. And since he never changes, he never grows old. Yes, he never has a failing of his, of his mental faculties. Yes, doesn't need eyeglasses. Uh, so his simplicity is entailed in all of these things. I was, I was thinking it's good that we're changeable because yes. the Holy Spirit works in us. Absolutely. Thank you, Lord, that you work in us. Uh, I'm going to pass this by because we've essentially said this. Uh, some scripture for um, simplicity, John 4, 24. God is spirit. He is not flesh. He is not a physical substance. He is spiritual substance. I don't even know what I'm talking about here, except I'm saying what Scripture says, and that's the best I can do. Uh, but because he is spiritual substance, they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What if worship in spirit depends... See, notice this. you notice this verse on the screen? That, that, that's almost in all of our Bibles, almost all of our Bibles, that comes right after chapter 3. Yes? What if worship in spirit is so dependent on new birth that without, without new birth you can't do it? But you can sing and preach and, and pray without the spirit and do it in moving ways. And when you if you preach the, the true gospel, then people can be saved, even from a non-believer preaching a, a true gospel. So apparently, singing and preaching and praying are not worship in spirit. Well, what is it? And why haven't we asked the question? Um, by contrast, for example, human beings are spirit and matter. In the incarnation, of course, our Lord became flesh, but the deity of the God-man was, was always and only spirit. So while he was incarnate on the earth, 
He knew what it was to live as a separate person from other persons. Yes? At the same moment that he was sustaining the universe by the will of his power. <laughs> I, I don't understand it, but here we are. Um, the simplicity of God underscores his self-existence, for there are no prior causes to form a, com a composite being. It assures us that God will never be anything other than spirit. Um, and it enables us to worship in spirit, Ryrie says. Um, so this is, this is foundational, folks. Someday, we got to figure out what worship that depends so completely on new birth for it, what that is. We've got to start asking that question. Okay, any questions about this stuff? Yes, Genghis. Uh, we see God's wrath in the Old Testament times. Can you point to anything in modern history where we experience God's wrath? Um, if you read Daniel 9, uh, you read about, is it 9? No, it's not 9. Where is that? 7, Daniel 7. If you read Daniel 7, let me make sure I know what I'm talking about here. Yeah, Daniel 7. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm off. I'm completely off on both of them. It's Daniel 11. I got it now. This one's right. Um, and then, see, things that used to be right there are not there anymore. So uh, the Lord is humbling his servant here. Uh, you have my heading for Daniel 11 in my in my Bible says the kings of the south and the north. Well, that must be the, the Civil War, American Civil War. <laughs> well, or, or, or maybe not, uh, because he talks about Egypt and, Syri and, and Syria and so forth. Um, the problem is, when you get late in the chapter, you have the little horn, you know that passage, you know that portion of it, move your heads in some direction, yes? Right. Is, it, is this new material for anybody here? Wave your hand. Okay. Daniel 11. You get this little character. Um, let's see. Where does the little horn show up the first time? Maybe you can find it quickly. Uh, yes? Say again. I am too. That's, that's where I'm headed. All right. So I'm, I'm trying to answer you. I know, but <laughs> that's, <laughs> well, I don't know about some of you, but <laughs> uh, um, where, where's the little horn? Seven? Okay, but th there's another one. Oh, it may not be a little horn then. Um, let's see. The despicable one. Daniel seven, seven no, it's in eleven. It's it, that I need. Um, I'm sorry to. No, it's in eleven. Uh, uh, say again. It is. Yes, you're right. But it's also in chapter eleven, and I, I've got to find it there. Um, 
let's see. Is Daniel 7 where it talks about the death of the little horn? Uh, oh, the chairman of my department. Uh, Seven twenty-one. Seven twenty-one. Yeah. Let's see. This this is still not what I'm looking for, and I'm sorry I can't find it. I'll I'll try to look it up and be prepared for this next week. But uh, in it's in Daniel eleven. You have the oppression of the of the the holy people, and the kings get really arrogant. Uh, the problem, this, this, these, this book has been attributed to Maccabean times, the uh, second century BC, because it sounds so much like Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was king of uh, Syria at the time. Uh, but they say it must have been written in 166 BC because um, or before 166 BC because Antiochus died in 165 and, the, and Daniel got, the writer of Daniel got the story wrong. Um, but you and I, none of us would be satisfied with that. If you're going to bring God into it, I can believe anything and God knows the future and so he can predict it. The point of, I want to make, folks, is that this, uh, this despicable character uh, who, who is not worthy of kingship tries to annihilate the holy people. Yes? You know anybody else who tried to annihilate the holy people? Now you're thinking about people in the 20th century. I'm thinking about Titus at the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and the pogroms in, in uh, uh, Europe over the centuries. Uh, you know why 1492 is important to Israel? That's when they were kicked out of Spain. And they, they had to wander to find a place to settle, and they became buffer between the, uh, uh, the Slavic-speaking peoples in, in Western Europe. Uh, as well as settling in the Arabic countries. So you got the uh, Sephardis in the Arabic countries and the Ashkenazis in, the, in Europe. Uh, but they were constantly subject to attacks and, and mass executions. Um, and then we get Hitler, yes? Uh, which one of those is not included in the prophecy of this book? You see, the prophecy is um, open enough to interpretation to include all of those. And what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the channel of fulfillment, I don't know whether you were here for that discussion, but each prophecy o opens up, as it were, a water flow, and it flows behind history, sometimes surfacing, sometimes walking, working behind history, but... Today, it's, it's the Arabic world that wants to wipe Israel off the map. Yes? Um, but this is, this is not 
um, something unique to the days of um, the second century BC. It's not something that's unique to the days of Titus in the first century AD. It's not something unique to the Middle Ages and the pogroms against the Jews in those years, nor to the, the Nazi attempt to wipe out Israel. It is the spirit of Antichrist that's at work in the world. So Genghis, yeah, it's here in our world. Um, the, you, read the, you read the newspaper today and then you go look at the prophets and you're reading the newspaper in the prophets. You're reading it in the, in the epistles of the New Testament. What are the lists of sins? All over the newspaper every day. Yeah. Yeah, Romans chapter 1. Turn, turn to Romans 1. All of you know this, but let's, let's see it in this setting. Romans chapter 1. God's wrath works in two ways. God's wrath works by blasting the sinner. <laughs> but it works in another way that's much more subtle and much less discernible to the people who are, in, who are ensnared in it. But Paul has explained it in Romans 1, um, verse 21, because when they did not know God, they didn't glorify him, or, nor were they thankful, and they became, you have vain in, in their thinking, or so, I don't know, what do you have? Futile in their, in their thoughts, and their, their unthinking heart was darkened. Supposing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God at the price of what they, what, what they gave away the glory of God to get was the likeness of the image of corruptible man in, oh, where did it go? Um, corruptible man and reptile, uh, 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 winged things and, and four-footed creatures and reptiles. Um, for this reason, God handed them over in the lusts of their hearts to uncleanness, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. You see any of that today? Yeah. The way God's, God's wrath works, there are two kinds of ways in which it works. One is by blasting the sinner. The other is by removing the restraints so that sinners can do more of the sin they want to do in the first place. You see any of that in this world? Every day. Yeah. And the wrath of God is working. It's the, the goal, if you watch it to the end of the chapter, you see that the goal of all of this, that is, the option that God is offering these people is repentance. But you, because of your, your um, um, oh gosh, I can't now quote it, uh, Romans 1 and um, verse 28. And just as they didn't think it appropriate to hold God in their knowledge, God turned them over to disapproved minds. Notice the word appropriate and approved, disapproved. It's a pun in, the, in Greek, as, as I've tried to make it in English. 
Uh, they don't approve God, so he doesn't approve them. Um, to a disapproved mind to do things that are not appropriate, filled with, and then you can list, read the list of sins there. That's the newspaper today. My, my point is, yeah, God's in the business of wrath today, but his goal is to get repentance. Go ahead. Follow-up question then. Is there a link between natural disasters and God's wrath? Probably, but I'm not sure I'm uh, competent to identify which ones are God's wrath and which ones are not. Uh, that we will know later. Oh, goodness, that's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, that's the wrath of God. Well, I don't know that, but. Um, um, wait, wait until your house burns down, and then. Well, if my house burns down, it'd be because he wants it. That's true, but my point is, I can't just look at the event and from that discern whether it's the wrath of God or not. But here are the issues. Um, so. Um, so you're saying, all of these. Removing the limits on sin. So yeah. the sinner continues sinning more and more. And more. Yeah. He still is hoping for. Uh, well, he's not hoping for anything. He's holding out the option of repentance. Uh, God, God knows whether they're going to repent or not, but he's. So he's not hoping. We used to sing a song when I was a kid, and with this we'll close because it's 7 15 almost. Um, Aren't we supposed to go to 7.15? Oh, good. Thank you, Lord. i got another 15 minutes. Uh, we used to sing a song, even into my young adulthood. Um, I went to Southern Baptist churches all those years, and we had invitations. And one of the invitation hymns that we sang is, The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. <laughs> Don't you let it come in? <laughs> we've made a beggar of our God. He's not a beggar begging pre people to turn to him. He's holding out the options. And we prefer our own way. Folks, what is it about Israel that they saw all that they saw in the wilderness and still were rebellious? It wasn't that they didn't see the goodness of God, but they didn't see in it the goodness of God. Objectively, they saw the goodness of God, but they didn't perceive it as the goodness of God. Their conception of him was, his purpose is to destroy us. Every time he invited them into closer relationship with himself, they said, no, we don't want to do that. He's going to kill us. If you, they, by implication, they say to Moses, if you want to go die, go up on the mountain, hear all that the Lord says, come back and tell us that uh, what he said, and we will do it. And I thought, yeah, liar, liar, pants on fire. But, but we don't want to die. Who of all flesh has heard God speaking from the fire and lived? Well, you have. So what are you talking about here? Do, do, you, do you follow this? They don't have eyes to see, ears to hear, or a heart to understand. The scripture says that over and over and over and over again. Uh, so this is the problem of the United States for all that the Lord has done for us. 
in our history. Our people don't have eyes to see, ears to hear, or heart to understand, and that will only come through the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We are under the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1 says we are living under the wrath of God. It's not because of disasters in Maui. It's because of the sinfulness of our people. Um, it all started when we bit the apple. It all started when we bit the apple. It all started when we concluded that the word of the serpent was more reliable than the word of God. Um, now, we, now we turn to the communicable attributes, and we'll just get a start on this tonight. Um, these are attributes that God shares with his creatures. I can't be infinite. I have a beginning. I don't have an end. Yes, for I have eternal life. I have a beginning. That means I can't be eternal. Uh, so eternal cannot mean, ever, uh, it can mean only everlasting for us. It does not mean eternal. We, we talked about eternality. God possesses the whole of his existence in one indivisible presence, in present. Uh, so I don't have that. I can remember when I was six. Don't remember much, but I can remember when I was six. Uh, but I'm not what I was when I was six. Neither are you. But God is always the same. When we talk about the communicable attributes, I don't know any, any better place to start than to talk about the truthfulness of God, his veracity. Uh, and so... The attribute of veracity refers to God's truthfulness. And that, amen. Thank you for telling me that. I would have had a hard time figuring that out. That is, his identity is the source of all truth. And that's more important than just a set, a set of four words. He is the source of all truth. Um, and the unf unfailing conformity of all divine action and the revelation uh, and revelation to this identity, everything God says conforms with His being. Everything God does conforms with His being, and that's going to be critical. We're going to see places where truth is is applied to the things of God in ways that seem odd. We're going to have to figure out what that means. But these two categories, He's the source of all truth. Uh, and the un unfailing conformity of all divine action and revelation to this identity. Everything God says and everything God does conforms to his being. There are things that humans do, and all of us have known people who've done things like that, and we say, that's just not like him. What, what's going on? That's not like her. Why, why, why did that person do that? Yes? All of us have felt that at times. Problem is, God is able to act in ways that seem out of character. Psalm 22 is one of the, one of the passages you really ought to camp out on and think about pretty deeply. Let me just point you to it here. The opening verses are painful. Um, we read them because this is scripture. Yes, we read them with the tones of of holy speech. And so, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, Psalm 22. 
But this is the way it ought to be read. I'm going to turn off the, the microphone for just a minute here because it's going to get loud. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? David, David is in profound pain as he writes this psalm, at least at the beginning. This is called a lament psalm. Usually in the beginning of a lament psalm, you have, oh God, or oh Lord, and you see, my God, my God, and so that fits that pattern. Furthermore, you have a, a, a rehearsal of the time of need. Uh, so the, David, or the psalmist will tell God the trouble that he's in. There probably will be some praise in the psalm, almost all the psalms. There are two psalms that don't have praise in them, only two out of 150. Psalm 87, 88, and I've forgotten the other, 136. 136, is that right? I think that's right. Um, but there are two kinds of lament psalm. Uh, by, by the way, every lament psalm is written to get to the petition. God, I want you to do something for me. And David uh, has the lament section and two or three petition sections in the psalm. Uh, there are two kinds of lament psalm in general. They call them open and closed laments. An open lament is one for which there is no answer given. God gives no response. A closed lament is one in which a response is given. So David goes on in his prayer, um, Psalm 22, verse uh, 1, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now, we might say, now, Brother David, the Lord is not far from you. Amen. And that would be very comforting for David. You have never been in a position where you wondered where God was in the situation? You have never been? Then don't ever say that to David in Psalm 22. Um, oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. And here's praise. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. Is that true? No. Yes, it is true to some degree. Okay. Yes, there are, there are fathers that try. Abraham, Isaac, yeah. trusted God, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. Why does he say that? Because what God has done in the past should be a model of what He will do in the future. Though He's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. So if God's done it in the past, he should do it for me, but he hasn't. To you they cried and they were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame, but I am a worm and no man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Even Israel has con concluded that God has abandoned David. Yes? It's public knowledge that God has abandoned David. Um, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is all thrown in God's face. 
Yet you are he, and here he comes back to, to, to praise again. Yet you, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. Did David go looking for God? Or did God go looking for David? Which is it? Uh-huh. Yes to what? <laughs> God went, why, whose fault is it that, God, that David has a relationship with God? God's. You got me into this. Do you not hear it? Um, on you, verse 10, on you I was cast from my mother's birth. I'm sorry, from my birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. And then he goes on with his, with his um, uh, lament. All the way down to verse 19, he comes back to petition again. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Do you not hear the tears in his voice as he says this? Oh, you, you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. Uh, my precious one, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And I'm reading from the, from the ESV. And, and this one got this part of the verse right. Um, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. In the very midst of the prayer, God has delivered him. This is called a closed lament because the answer has come. David is, uh, I don't know what part of his life he wrote this in. I wish we knew more about it. I, I'm suspicious of, it could be when he's running from Saul or it could be when he's running from Absalom and I don't know which and I don't have any way to say which one it would be. Uh, Absalom would make perfect sense but I can't pin it to a historical setting so I have to kind of leave it exempt from that kind of reasoning. But uh, David is king, yes? Do you remember how he was dressed when they brought the ark to the city of David? BVDs? BVDs? <laughs> Not exactly BVDs. Uh, he's wearing an ephod. What kind of, what, what, what kind of garment is that? Pardon? It's priestly. It's a priestly garment. Why is David wearing a priestly garment? Um, do you know who wrote Psalm 110? It's David. Um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your, your enemies the footstool of your feet. I'm going to, I've lost part of the passage there, so I've got to look it up. Psalm 110. Um, yeah, but what I especially want to get to is um, verse 4. And will not change his mind. Who is you in Psalm 110.4? It's David. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is why Jesus can use this because this is true of all the Davidic kings. They have a Melchizedekan order of priesthood. Are you with me here? 
and Jesus is the chief priest of the chief priests. So uh, David is not only a king, but he's a prophet and a priest. So he has all the offices of Jesus. <laughs> and God gives him, he speaks to him, apparently. I don't know whether he spoke, I don't know whether he said, I'm going to answer your prayer, or whether he did something remarkable that David erased the rest of the <laughs> psalm that he was going to write and added this in. Uh, you have rescued me. Uh, the Hebrew text will, will, will read this way. Most of our texts continue the petition here. But you can't explain the shift in atmosphere between verses 1 to 21 and verses 22 and following. Otherwise, if God has not answered his prayer, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. What is the greater joy than being in utter despair and suddenly being completely released. Do you follow that? There is no greater joy. And David is experiencing it here in Psalm 22. My point is to say, folks, in God's mercy, he takes us to the point of despair frequently. Not because he has abandoned us, but God is able to, to mask his presence from us such that we feel abandoned. But we must learn from David and from all the Old Testament saints and from all the New Testament and from the history of the church, all the saints who have suffered persecution in the past. We must, we must learn to know that even when God seems absent, he is most present. And when the darkest of the dark night has come, the light is sure to come soon. It may be through death. It may be through rescue. But the light is near. Am I making any sense to you? I can see why David would have this. Because oh, yeah. the mortality, mortality rate of kings was Yeah. So, so the point here in, in talking about the veracity of God is that even when God seems to be acting completely out of character, number one, it's okay for you to shout in God's eyes, shout in his ears, shout in his face, pour out all your frustration, your fatigue, your pain, your anguish, pour it all out. Because he has stout shoulders and he can bear all of it and brothers and sisters, he understands your pain. He watched his son go to death for us. He understands your pain. But he also knows what he's planning to do and what joy you're going to have when it comes to pass. And when God is seeming to act absent, he's not. <clears throat> Because his character, his words, and his works are all true. When we talk about truth in God, it's not just saying the word of God is true and all of its and all that it affirms. We believe in inerrancy and infallibility. That's true. That's certainly consistent with what we're talking about. But we're talking about the person of God at this point, not not the Bible. And so when we talk about the truth of God, 
Uh, we're talking about his complete internal consistency. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, why do you flee for refuge? Because trouble's outside. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. It's impossible for God to lie. So when you think God is absent, you may know that he is most present. And when he's absent, when the, the light gets, the darkness of the night gets darker and darker and darker. And you think it's gotten as bad as dark as it can get, but it gets darker still. You've been through times like this, perhaps. But that's not God's aim and goal for you. His aim and goal for you is to take you out into the light so that you can become a testimony to the faithfulness of God even in the darkest night. Let's close with prayer. And we'll pick up at this point next week. Father, everything I've said I believe is true, but nothing I said is something I'm willing to go into. Um, you know how weak my faith is. And the only way to strengthen weak muscles is to put strain on them. And you do that for us in your mercy and in your love. You bring us into hardship to strengthen us, to teach us how good you really are so that we can be a testimony in the ages to come. I can't, I can't imagine this, Father, but the angels are trying to understand grace by watching us. And we, is it the case that before the angels we will bear testimony of your character? Because they're finite like we are. They have less limitation than we do, but they're finitely. We are. They can't know everything that's happened to us. So is it the case that we will be explaining to them what you did for us as they will be explaining to us what you have done for them? Uh, if this is the case, Father, if this is our future, to be professors for the angelic host, <laughs> um, Give us steadfastness in the midst of trouble. Remind us to turn back to you, cling to you, because there's no place else to cling. Oh, my mother used to hold me out at arm's length to spank me. <laughs> it would have been easier if she had let me cling to her when she spanked me, <laughs> but she would have hurt herself <laughs> in that. And Father, when you discipline us, you are pained too. But teach us to draw in closer to you. Cling to what we've learned in the light, not doubting in the darkness what we've learned, but holding fast to the truth of what you are. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Attributes of God with Dr. Jim Allman. If you're new to Central Church, you can check us out 
at centralchurch.com. You can get more information about our ministries and our classes. We hope to see you back.